Please open your Bible one more time to Exodus chapter 20. If you're using the church Bibles, that's going to be found on page 72. This week we're finishing a series of 11 meditations on the Ten Commandments. Uh, just in time that we can turn to the stories of the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke next week for Christmas Eve. Uh, as we've done throughout the series, I'm going to read all of the Ten Commandments, these ten instructions from God to Israel at Mount Sinai. And then we're going to focus together on the last commandment, verse 17. As we will see, the Ten Commandments end where breaking other laws begin with our disordered desires. Uh, so the commands we've been looking at, murder, theft, stealing, those sorts of things begin with wrong desires. Here now the reading of God's word from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will hold him, not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. These uh, ten instructions come to a little bit of a strange ending. Over the last several weeks, we've been focusing on some pretty serious issues. Murder, adultery, theft. But then we end with coveting. As Edmund Clowney puts it, the commandments begin with worshiping God and end with an admonition not to be looking too hard at that sleek donkey next door. <laughs> the, but this commandment, along with the first commandment, provide a perspective or a way of looking at all the other commandments. The first command and the tenth command are a bit like the two towers of the Golden Gate Bridge that suspends the whole weight in between. 
the first and last commandment, forbidding idolatry and then coveting, teach us how to rightly read all the commands in between. So when Jesus teaches, as we heard earlier in the service, that the law and the prophets depend on or are summarized by loving God and loving our neighbor, he's picking up on this sort of suspension bridge architecture or the deep logic of the Ten Commandments. These instructions begin by rightly ordering our love toward God, not having other gods before him. And they end by rightly ordering our love towards our neighbor and especially what belongs to our neighbors, not desiring what's theirs. To understand this 10th commandment this morning, I want to look at three ideas. The first is that attitudes are important too. The second is an instruction. We're to desire God's kingdom. And third, we are to replace coveting with contentment. First, the 10th commandment opens up a whole new (coughs) ethical realm. It's like right at the end of the Ten Commandments after it said, don't do all these various actions, it opens the door and it says, even beyond that, there's a whole other set of things that you need to be concerned about. It's not just actions, but attitudes are important too. Attitudes are important too. The book of Exodus is all about freedom. God delivers his people from oppression and slavery in Egypt and leads them out to Mount Sinai. But we are now learning that true Exodus freedom is not just about freedom from external oppressors, but it is also freedom from controlling internal desires that are contrary to human flourishing. Covenant faithfulness, to put it another way, is more than just external conformity. Our thoughts and desires Our attitudes and intentions also matter. The Tenth Commandment then pushes us to a Godward orientation. Only God knows our hearts. In the nature of the case, you could never prosecute a violation of this command. What sort of evidence would you give that someone had coveted? It can't be proven in a law court. But it's here in the Ten Commandments. It matters nonetheless. So the 10th commandment pushes us towards an internalization of the law. God's law not only should control our outward behavior, but it should shape our hearts, our dispositions, our attitudes, our desires. Jesus adopts this very perspective when he teaches his followers how to follow God's law. We've seen this because I keep quoting week after week from the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus do each time? He begins with a basic commandment, you shall not murder, and then he points further down, further in, on how it also highlights heart attitudes that we shouldn't have and that we should have. So don't just not murder, but also don't be angry with your brother with the sort of anger that leads to murder. Don't be insulting with the kind of language that promotes murder. He says not only don't commit adultery, but don't have the sort of heart desire that leads to adultery. In each case, he's saying our attitudes, our dispositions, our inner life also matters. But when he does that, it's not really something new. Rather, he reads the law well. He starts with the first and last command, not having idols, not having coveting, and he reads all the laws in terms of those, drawing out the spiritual or inner implications of each law. 
Uh, Paul kind of says the same thing in, in Romans chapter 7. He says, when I first really realized I was a sinner, it's when I read the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. He felt pretty good as far as all the other laws went. But when he got there and he started reflecting on all these things, he says, um, it pr produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I realized I actually desired all sorts of things in a wrong way. Paul realized attitudes are important too. Although it's interesting to notice which attitude the 10th commandment focuses on. If you, were an, you or I or a committee were going to sit down and pick 10 things that we were going to ban to create a flourishing society, and we were going to end with a certain attitude to ban, we might pick anger or greed or something like that. But what does it say here? Coveting. Coveting. In Deuteronomy 5, when Moses recounts the Ten Commandments, when he goes over the Tenth Commandment, he actually uses a different verb. It's just this, the basic word, desire. And that's what coveting is. It's simply wrong desires. So this last command tells us that we are not to wrongly set our hearts on what God has given to others. Coveting is wrongly directed desire. It's wrongly directed love. Coveting puts things or people in place of God. Or to put it really simply, coveting is an if-only mindset. If only I had this. If only I had that. We'll come back to that in just a second, but just a brief comment on desires, and if you were here for, uh, I've got to do the numbers in my head, the seventh commandment, we talked about desire at length, um, uh, so you can go back and listen to that online, but just a reminder, desires are innate to human nature. God created us as beings with desire, and Genesis 2 says he put us in a garden with all sorts of desirable trees. That's what it says, the trees were desirable. When you looked at them, they filled you with desire. God made human beings as desiring beings and put them in a context with desirable things. So our desires are not inherently wrong. But as a result of Adam's rebellion, things are not the way they're meant to be. Our nature is corrupted. And the consistent reformed view is that we are accountable not only for our actions, but also for our being, our nature, our condition. We are not the way we should be, and that's our fault, because we're descendants of a rebel who turned against God. So desires are good, but they're not a, uh, it's like a broken compass. They don't always point the way they should because our nature has been corrupted. And we are liable both for the fruit, things like adultery, theft, murder, but also the root of sin, the wrong desires. Calvin astutely comments, covetousness can exist without deliberation or consent when the mind is only pricked or tickled by empty and perverse objects. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, that your mind gets pricked or tickled by some passing thing, and all of a sudden you realize you're coveting something. You never decided to, but there it is. Our desires become corrupted in three ways. We fix our desires on objects that we ought not have. God says that's not for you, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we desire it. Our desires become corrupted when we desire with the wrong measure or value. We value ourselves too highly above our neighbors. Or we value someone who's not our spouse in a way that we ought not to. Our desires become corrupted when we try to satisfy our desire with other means than what God has given. 
Well, what sorts of things might we desire that we ought not to? Uh, the last commandment here gives us a whole list, and it's fundamentally our neighbor's life. Let's come back to that idea. Coveting is if only. If only I had my neighbor's house, or my neighbor's wife, or my neighbor's servants, or their ox, or their donkey, or something that belongs to my neighbor. I, I don't know how many people I've talked to that say our, our dream is to own some acreage in the mid-county. Um, and I don't think there's enough acres in mid-county for everybody I've talked to, and I've only been here for five years. Uh, that's fine to have desires like that. But then if you go to someone's house, uh, you know, you sit on the porch at Nate's house and you look out of the field and you think, if only I had Nate's house, then my life would be perfect. Okay. Uh, sorry, Nate, you sat in the wrong seat this morning. <laughs> it could be Tom's too. Tom has a lovely, lovely uh, uh, property around his house as well. But you know, th when you start getting that attitude, if only I had this, then everything would be right. Uh, and then it goes on, uh, house, literally the house, but also the whole household, because it lists all these other things, like your neighbor's wife. It's interesting, Deuteronomy, Moses flips the order. He puts the wife before house. Uh, but we've probably all, at one time or another, at least adults, had this sort of thought. If only I was married to this other person, things would be easier. Look, their spouse seems so put together. It seems like they never fight. Well, of course, because they're not fighting in public in front of you. But you, you, know, that's, you, know, you just look on someone else and you think, if, if I had that, then my life would be right. Uh, servants, we don't usually have servants today, although um, Jack's advice for babies was uh, if you live in a country that still has servants, it makes it a lot easier, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, but it, uh, servants are about people who work for you. It's really about the modern equivalent is employees. And so it's saying, I wish I had my neighbor's job. You know, the promotion they got, so they have more people working under them. If I had that position, then my life would be right. If I got that pay raise, then everything would go well. Oxes and donkeys, that's a means of production and transportation. So it's, you know, if I had their car, if I had that tool set, if I had their library, then everything would be right, whatever that is. And then for good measure, it's thrown in, or anything that belongs to them. Uh, the heart is just a fickle thing. It can set itself on all sorts of crazy things. Uh, and the law is aware of that. So again, Calvin says, since God wills that our whole soul be possessed with a disposition to love, we must banish from our hearts all desire contrary to love. Okay, watch out for that if-only mindset. You know, the bizarre thing is we actually have an app now for doing if-onlys. Do you realize that? It's called Instagram. And I'm not just picking on Instagram because I'm not good at photography, although that is one of the reasons I'm bitter about it. But Images have a profound ability to capture our imagination in a way that mere words don't, okay? Uh, you know, unless you're disciplined, if you have your Bible sitting open and your phone sitting open to Instagram, one's going to capture your attention more naturally than the other. Images capture our minds. And with Instagram and similar things, the ability to tweak images on the go just makes all this worse. When our neighbor goes on vacation to Hawaii and we see the pictures on Instagram, the weather is always a little bit better. The water is always a little bluer. The grass always a little greener because there's filters that make it look that way. In the nature of the case, the reality can never actually live up to what you're seeing. I'm picking on Instagram, but it's all sorts of things. This time of the year, Christmas season, you get all the ads sent to you of all these things you don't even know you need until you see it and then you realize you need it. Um, 
I, was, I use YouTube a lot for picking hymns, just to you know, sing the melody with it. And this week, I discovered that there is now a stud finder that you hook your phone up to, and it will show you an x-ray of the wall, copper pipes, studs, all of it, and you can see right through the wall. And I realized, this is what I need, old, owning an older house. And I never even knew such a thing existed. My old stud finder was fine until uh, now. And now I know I need a, you know, the, the, our world is designed to create desires in us for things so people can sell us stuff so they can get what we already have. It's the way our world is set up. Our attitudes are important too. That's what the 10th commandment tells us. But the biblical solution is not to get rid of all desire, but rather to focus and shape our desires on the right things. And so the second truth is that we are to desire God's kingdom. If we want to be truly free, we need to desire God's kingdom. There's religions and philosophies, ancient and modern, that see desire itself as the fundamental problem, and so teach us to restrain or kill our desires. But the Bible says freedom is not found in the death of desire, but rather our desires should mature. They should grow rather than being killed. C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis says our problem isn't that that we have too much desire. Our problem is that we desire too little. We were made to desire infinite joy. We were made to desire God's kingdom. Uh, This isn't just a New Testament thing, though. It's right there in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, before God gives the law to Israel, he tells Moses what's about to happen. And do you remember what he says? He says, I'm going to give Israel my instructions for how to live as my people so that Israel will be made into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's right there from the start. God rescues a bunch of slaves and he says, I'm going to make them into my kingdom. That is to say, God gives his law as part of a shaping process, forming his people into a kingdom. And so here at the 10th commandment, we're called to discipline our desires in keeping with God's kingdom purposes. Jesus teaches his disciples the same thing. We prayed the prayer he taught us to pray earlier. And what does it begin with? Not with, give me my daily bread, the things I want, but rather it begins by asking God that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our first petition is for God's kingdom. When our desires are transformed, we turn our eyes to the treasures of heaven. Uh, Edmund Clowney again, the transformation of envy for the Christian is to desire honestly and earnestly that God's will be done in the advancement of his kingdom, no matter what implications this has in the way of physical bounty. This is not a prayer of resignation, but of, uh, of spiritual intensity. That is to say, praying, thy will be done, is not saying, I give up, just whatever's going to happen, but it's a, a prayer of spiritual intensity, longing for the kingdom. So Jesus teaches his disciples that the fundamental basic desire cannot be fixed on houses, or spouses, or servants, or oxen, or donkeys, or anything. Rather, what does Jesus call his disciples to desire? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and these things will be added to you. Do we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness? Is that what our fundamental longing is for, is for God's kingdom? Do we pray that his kingdom would come? That is, do we pray that his will would be done, that his rule would extend throughout our lives and our communities? Do we desire God's kingdom? Well, it's what we see in Jesus' own life. After Jesus cleans out the temple, John says that the disciples recalled this line from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. They saw in the way Jesus lived, someone consumed with zeal for God's house, for God's worship, for God's kingdom. Uh, In Hebrews 13, we're told, keep your life free from the love of money, that is coveting, and be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God's presence, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I'll be with you. God's presence is our greatest good. And so we desires, our desires are rightly ordered when what we long for is God himself to be present with us. That's what God's kingdom means, that he's present with us. So God's presence is our greatest good. And yet that Hebrew name, Emmanuel, that we sing in our Christmas carols, we've already sung this, Christmas, or this Advent season a number of times, means God with us. The name means God's presence, our greatest good. And so Christ Jesus is our greatest good. God gave himself to be present with us through Jesus Christ. That's the Christmas message. In Jesus Christ, we see just the opposite of coveting. The very opposite of coveting. Uh, one of our kids had to memorize this week um, from Philippians 2 that God, uh, uh, the Son, Christ Jesus, he was in the very form of God. He had all the riches and glory of heaven, but he didn't grasp onto it. He didn't hold tight to it for his own use, but instead emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. For love of God and love of his neighbor, the Son didn't covet, but instead gave himself up for our sake. He desired God's kingdom. God's rule extended through our lives, and so he came to seek us, and he gave himself to establish God's kingdom. That's what Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Who do you bow down to? You bow down to a king. That's the kind of language being used here. It's saying because he was obedient to the point of death, he's now been exalted and enthroned, and so when the herald announces his name, every knee will bow down, and every tongue will confess that Jesus the Messiah is the Lord of all things. That's the establishing of God's kingdom. Jesus, in his humility, keeps God's law in perfect obedience, even to the point of death, so is exalted and enthroned, the ruler of God's kingdom. He desired God's kingdom above all else. Well, I, I mentioned earlier that there's some, you know, some bad news. I didn't label it as that, but that we are responsible for our desires, and because our nature is corrupted, our desires go off all haywire, and we're responsible for that. Uh, we confessed earlier in our confession of sin that God knows our hearts. Our hearts are open to him. That's bad news, but it's also good news. Uh, G.I. Packer writes, There's tremendous relief in knowing God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, 
so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. Our hearts are open before God. He knows our desires. He knows the absolute worst about us from all eternity. So nothing you say or do is going to surprise him, and all of a sudden he's caught off guard and kicks you out. He knew the worst about you and still loved you. Our natures are corrupt, but the good news is we can confess our corrupted desires. Who knows where they come from? A prick or a tickle of the mind, and we're starting to desire things in a way that we ought not to, but we can confess that to the Lord immediately. But ultimately, doing follows being. Desiring rightly follows a nature that is set up to desire rightly. And so what we really need is God to fix our hearts. In the Old Testament, the prophets regularly promise a new covenant. Moses makes a covenant uh, or mediates a covenant between God and Israel here at Mount Sinai. But then Isaiah, or rather Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they promise a new and coming covenant covenant. But the problem with the Old Covenant isn't that the ethical principles we've been studying are outdated and need updated. It's not something wrong there that needs changed. The problem with the Old Covenant is us. The problem's with our hearts. We just simply aren't the sort of people that can keep God's law perfectly on our own. That's what the Tenth Commandment reminds us. You may not have murdered or committed adultery or stolen or even lied this week, but your desires are disordered. What we need is something from outside ourselves, God's own Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to renew us, that we might desire rightly, that we might desire the kingdom. And so we heard in the assurance of pardon from John 3 that the Son gives the Holy Spirit without measure to those who believe in him so that they can obey him. We sing in the Christmas carol, Jesus was born to give us second birth. It's why he came, so that we could be born again, our hearts could be renewed. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, came so that we can have new hearts and be faithful to God's new covenant. Okay, that's what we should desire instead, desiring God's kingdom. The implication of this command then, and this will be shorter, don't worry, is that we replace coveting with contentment. We replace coveting with contentment. The law is ultimately about love, love for God and love for our neighbor. And contentment means appreciating God's good gifts to ourselves and to others in a larger kingdom context. Okay? If you desire God's kingdom first, that's your fundamental desire, God's rule and reign, then you can desire things like a good spouse, a good piece of property, a good job, all those sorts of things, but it's in the context of God's ultimate kingdom purposes. And it's trusting that ultimately what God gives us is what's for our good. Although that seems counterintuitive because he still lets his saints die. He still lets his saints get cancer and have all sorts of heartache and trauma. And yet, nonetheless, in faith we say what he is giving us is ultimately for our good. And we say that because we know our greatest good is not to live in this world, in this flesh, as we are broken and disordered for eternity. Our ultimate good is outside this life in the life to come. And so this life has to come to an end. The things of this life have to come to an end. Contentment means appreciating God's good gift, trusting him as our good creator. Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
we know the reason God doesn't give us, you know, whatever we think of a Tesla or a Porsche or whatever, you know, kind of thing that we might want. We know that it's not because he doesn't, I'm getting too many negatives in here. Uh, if God doesn't give us something that we want like that, it's not because he doesn't love us. We know that he loves us. And the definitive proof of that is that he gave up his son for us. What was absolutely most valuable to God, he gave up for us. And so we know that he loves us to infinity, to eternity, as much as possible. And so then we trust that what he gives us is what's for our good. What he withholds from us is for our good. So replacing coveting with contentment means both accepting what God has given to us and celebrating what God has given to our neighbor. It means accepting our place in life. Contentment means finding fulfillment in our creator, trusting his mercy and wisdom. Paul talks about contentment in the book of Philippians. And it's interesting in Romans, he says, coveting was the part of the law that really hit home for him. And then the whole book of Philippians is, in a sense, a meditation on contentment. I think it's something that Paul probably wrestled with his whole life. In Philippians 4, he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? Because I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's basically the same words that Michael Perry wrote in O God Beyond All Praising. I, I, in any and every circumstance, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I, I don't remember how he put in that hymn, something about ill or good. Um, in all those circumstances, contentment is saying, I can face this through God who gives me strength. It's a summary of Paul's teaching on contentment from Philippians. Uh, just, it's just a collage of verses. He, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so I can be content no matter what happens. He says, I've been found in Christ. Christ Jesus has made me his own. So in whatever situation, I can be content. To live is Christ. I'm united to him. He is with me through his Holy Spirit. But notice he doesn't say, as soon as I became a Christian, I immediately had this secret to contentment in all situations. What he says, rather, is I have learned the secret. It's a process. It's not easy. It takes time. It's a learning. Contentment doesn't happen automatically, but rather our desires need disciplined. Our contentment requires coaching. Pastor Bert and I were just joking a little bit before service, but saying, you know, my hope is, or wish has always been when I face difficult situations in parenting or whatever, that I would have matured to the point where I can just handle it calmly and perfectly. But that's not the way we grow in life. God grows us through the difficulty. You've got to go through the hardship to mature, to have the sort of skills to handle that sort of hardship in the future. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, put it this way, there's no shortcut to heaven. The only way to heaven is through life. You've got to go through all the pain, the ache, the sorrow, the trauma, the trials, that that's the way we get matured and shaped to be fit for heaven. Uh, sorry, I'm getting off my notes here. Uh, what I'm saying here about contentment, though, is not fatalism or passivity. It's not simply saying, your will be done, I'll just sit back, whatever happens. In the same letter, Paul writes to the Philippians, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Contentment doesn't mean we don't strive. It doesn't mean we don't press on. It doesn't mean we're not active. 
Rather, in the words of John Wesley, it means, until my work on this earth is done, I am immortal. But when my work for Christ is done, I go to be with Jesus. It's a reassuring thought. You will not die a moment before your work for Christ on this earth is done. He preserves us. We are immortal as long as we have work to do for God, and yet, once our work is done, we go to be with Christ. Packer says, when we face trials, J.I. Packer, uh, if you ask, what is, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. That's part of contentment. It's asking not, why is this happening to me? Why don't I have this job? Why don't I have that house? Why am I, don't I have that spouse? But rather, how do I glorify God now? The flip side of it, though, is not just being content in our own circumstances, but actually celebrating our neighbors flourishing. The counter to the if-only syndrome is rejoicing in what our neighbor has. Take our neighbor's house, for example. Learning to enjoy our neighbor's house or farm without envy or begrudging it takes discipline. Being on the receiving end of hospitality without envy also takes spiritual discipline. And yet, if you've uh, you know, been to Nate's house and sat on the porch with Nate at sunset, it's a relaxing thing to enjoy someone else's house and then to go home and say, I'm glad Nate's the one who mows those five acres, not me, or I suppose it's probably your boys that do some of that. But you know, it's, it, it, if we had everything we wanted, we wouldn't even be able to maintain it all. And so we can rejoice that our neighbors maintain things well, and then we can enjoy it with them. Uh, longing for, or, or, or wrongly desiring our neighbor's wife, um, Alan Noble, in a book called Disruptive Witness, is very forthright about his temptations to lust. And he says, this is what I've learned to do. Uh, And I'm paraphrasing slightly. But he says, when I'm tempted to lust, I pray, thank you, God, that you made this woman beautiful in your image and gave her to someone else. And he said he finds that that kind of a prayer, you did make this a beautiful woman in your image, and you gave her to someone else, that that turns away lust and reorients it towards recognizing God's good gift and that it's God's good gift to someone else. Work, we, can be, uh, ha- we need to develop gratitude for all the various things that other people do in their work without coveting. We can learn to be thankful that someone else on our team or our farm or whatever has skills that we don't have. And rather than envying it and being upset about it, we can say, thank goodness that that person is on my team that has those skills and can do those things. It's not easy, but this is how we develop over time. It's to learn to be thankful for what God has given to other people. In conclusion, then, the Ten Commandments, God's law, it's not just about actions. Our attitudes are important, too. The Ten Commandments are not just about externals, but they're also about internals. And so we've got to discipline our desires. We've got to seek the kingdom. We've got to replace coveting with contentment. But that's not something you can do on your own. It takes a changed heart. We need heart surgery, each and every one of us. We have a fatal flaw that our hearts need surgery if we're going to live. And so the Christmas message is central once again. That Christ came into the world as God with us so that we can have our greatest good, his presence. And he came to give his spirit without measure, His spirit that transforms and renews our desires and reorients them to the things that actually lead to flourishing and freedom. And so the beginning 
of keeping this commandment is trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus, maybe you've been to church your whole life, and yet you've never said, I'm going to lean on Jesus. I'm going to trust him as my Savior. He's the one person who's perfectly fulfilled the law. He's the one person who says, believe in me and you can have eternal life. He's the one person who gives the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. What a great way to start celebrating Christmas. Trust in Jesus. For the rest of us, we trust in Jesus, and yet are we willing to let him reorient our desires? It's not easy. It's not easy. This might be the hardest command in some ways. And yet this is how we grow into Christ, is trusting God that he's put us in the moment that we're in and asking, how do I glorify God in the midst of this situation? Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you entered our world as Jesus Christ. God become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Indeed, this is our greatest good, to live with you. Exodus is going to point us there at the end of the tabernacle, you living in the midst of your people. That's the goal of your kingdom. Lord, make us fit to live in your presence. Reorient our hearts. Reorder our desires. Fix our loves that we might love in a way that we should. Let us find true freedom in desiring your kingdom above all else. Subordinate all our desires to that. As we've just talked about, we ask even now as we sing your praises in a moment, you would be at work on our hearts, teaching us to love you, shaping our desires. We ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our great Lord, who gives us the Holy Spirit. Amen.